All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Forward Marginal Guidance, which is, of course, the name of Jack and my um, mix-up collab show here. Uh, today, we are joined uh, by uh, Michael Howell of Cross-Border Capital. Michael, welcome back to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Great to be here, yeah. Mike. Great to talk to you, Michael, again. Good, good. Hi, Joe. Absolutely. So maybe we can just dive in. You know, we're recording this um, just a couple of minutes after Chair Powell's FOMC address has has ended. Uh, there was a lot to unpack there before getting into kind of the nitty gritty details. Um, Michael, I'd love to kind of just turn it over to you and kind of get your high level take on Chair Powell's address. Yeah, I, I'd say after having listened to a lot of these uh, FOMC uh, press conferences, I mean, this has actually been one of the most interesting ones that I can remember. Uh, there's a, there, as you said, there's a lot to unpack. I think that Chair, Chair Powell was very transparent. He answered a lot of the questions very honestly, or as honestly as he could have done. Um, so I think that he gave a lot of clues about the the way the the FOMC sees the the path forward in a way. Mm. So uh, could could you maybe get into get into some of the details there, uh, Michael? Like what stood out to you, and maybe just uh, to give the audience like the subtext, at least for me, going into this FOMC meeting and why there was so much attention on it is you know the Fed had been up until this point very clear about the desire to to hike and to use Powell's exact words to to get the job done. Right. But, you know, just a couple of these these past two weeks have been marked by several high profile bank failures and actually culminating in a bank failure over in Europe uh, with them in the form of Credit Suisse. So there was sure. kind of a bit of questioning about how much leeway the, the Federal Reserve really had to keep hiking rates. So I guess what, um, you know, with that subcontext in mind, I mean, what kind of stood out to you from this FOMC? Well, I think one of the things that seems to come out is that we're we're a lot nearer the peak in rates this week. Than we were last week or ten days ago. I think we're 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 coming near to that summit for sure. Uh, there may all debate about how quickly rates can come down, but I think it was uh, interesting in the sense that uh, let me pick out a couple of points that I noted. One was that Chair Powell noted there have been a sharp tightening in, in U.S. credit conditions as a result of these uh, of these bank difficulties or failures. So I think that's what one point to note. That clearly will have to be taken into account in future assessments of monetary policy. The second thing is that the FOMC's own estimates of the terminal rate, which I think one would have inferred may have gone up a tad pre the meeting, was actually left unchanged. So it's sort of signaling that we are, in my view, somewhere near the peak in rates. Uh, that's at least as they see it. The other thing I think that comes out of this is really about the balance sheet. And I was kind of surprised by maybe the transparency, maybe the honesty with which Chair Powell addressed a lot of the very pointed questions about uh, is this QT, uh, is the is an expansion on the balance sheet essentially derailing uh, the existing policy? Uh, what does it mean, et cetera? And I think there was a lot of insight that came out of that. And you know, the takeaway that I would say is that he said, look, um, this is not an attempt to alter monetary policy. In other words, this temporary lending to the banks. Uh, it's very different from the prior policy of long uh, of uh, large scale asset purchases, which was actually the accumulation of treasuries that got put onto the Fed balance sheet during the COVID crisis. Uh, he sees this as being different. It's not an attempt to ease monetary policy, but what I would say is it probably results in an easing of monetary policy. And that may be a subtle difference, but my reading of this is this is cl clearly uh, a QT, a quantitative easing, or as I put it when I was, uh, you know, uh, tweeting the other day, it's a quantitative something, and we've got to hope it's a quantitative easing. Uh, and that's what uh, you know I would say. Now, if we cut to the sort of the, the chase of this, 
the question that everyone's really got to ask is this, is why are the banks the major casualties of increasing interest rates, not borrowers? Because if you look at the what the economists say or what the textbooks tell us, it should be the borrowers that are getting squeezed by higher rates, not the banks. So something odd is going on here. And rather like 2008 and rather like 2012 in Europe or 2019 or again in 2020, what this tells us is that it's a, it's a funding or liquidity crisis. And that's really the key point to take away. So in other words, it's not borrowers that are being squeezed so much or the real evidence of blood on the streets. It's actually the banks. And the banks are clearly in a, in a situation. Now, I think if we, if we take this narrative and we kind of roll forward, what does it mean? I think that the state of the banking industry worldwide is sufficiently troubled that what we're moving to quite quickly is a de facto nationalization, if you like, of the world banking industry. Now, that's a big statement, but let me try and unpack that a little bit. The first thing is that when SVB uh, needs to be bailed out, if my memory serves me correctly, the FDIC initially said that uh, large deposit holders would not be fully bailed out. In other words, there'd be the 350,000 US dollar limit. Correct? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In 2012, after the European banking debacle then, when you saw many banks under great, great pressure, I believe there was uh, an agreement among the G20 uh, governments that no banks would be bailed out or depositors would not be made good apart from these limits. Okay, So the FDIC and the G20 had agreed there would be effectively no uh, bail-in of depositors. And what do you get? The Treasury or uh, the government essentially derailed that and said, SVB, everybody, all depositors, whatever they've got, are made good. So this is a fundamental change. And as far as I can see, and actually Chair Powell, to his credit, sort of hesitated about actually confirming this. He you know, said he wouldn't comment anymore if my memory serves me correctly. Essentially, what this means is de facto, in my view, that bank deposits have been more or less guaranteed. Now, if the US is doing this, and clearly we don't know, this is my inference, we don't know it's true, but I think that's the, the extrapolation one's got to make here, then all other governments worldwide have got to make the same commitment because otherwise the US banking system, which is underwritten by uh, the Treasury, is going to look a lot, lot better than the European or the British or the Japanese or whatever it may be. So I think that this is essentially saying what you've got is we're moving towards a situation whereby the balance sheet of commercial banks and the balance sheets of, of the central banks are de facto merging together. So effectively, overnight, we've virtually nationalized global banks, and we're moving very quickly towards central bank digital currencies, or that effect. And that's a big statement. So that's my view of what's going on. The US banking system is, is clearly fine under that, under that backdrop. Uh, there's no problem, okay, at all. But the issue that you've got to face is that what's going on now and what the problems, what, where all these problems were exposed, is that the funding structure, to come back to my point, this is not, uh, you know, this is a funding crisis. The funding structure of banks worldwide is actually very difficult. Uh, they, they, you know, with uh, a lot of losses on bonds, and, you know, after all, we saw that back in 2008, the losses were different kind of losses. Mm -hmm. They're about credit risk. These are about uh, duration risk. But those losses basically need to make, be made good somehow.
And what you've got is the monetary authority now standing behind that. So I think that's an important point. The second thing I would go on to say is that the corollary of all that is that banks under this particular uh, situation are probably got to be much better regulated. In other words, you've got to expect sometime down the road a Basel four, if you like. In other words, they're going to have to. There's got to be more oversight on what banks are doing. And that may mean at the end of the day, they hold more government debt. Now, that may be, if you like, a virtue uh, from the government's point of view. And what you've got is a situation where this may be deemed uh, financial dominance. So in other words, the banks have been, you know, they, they've been bailed out uh, and they've had they've got liquidity. But at the end of the day, they are then being, if you like, uh, subservient to the governments because the governments will use that uh, balance sheet to actually hold more and more government debt. And that, if you like, squares a very important circle. But it tells us one thing, if I'm correct, that we're looking at a situation moving forward over the next few years where structurally the level of inflation uh, in the world economy, or at least in the West, is going to be higher than we've been thinking. And the reason for that is that there's an awful lot of debt to finance out there. In other words, government debt. Just look at the CBO figures uh, that have recently been released for the next decade about US fiscal spending and the size of the deficit. They don't even put in uh, what is likely to be a significant step up in defense spending. Uh, I've said as well in many occasions that the US is actually the cleanest shirt in the laundry here once you start looking at other countries. So the US is not that bad relative to what's going on in Europe, uh, for example. And so what you've got is a lot of debt to sell, and the banks may be the recipients of that. So effectively, the growth of debt uh, by the US government is going to re be reflected in the growth of bank balance sheets, which is going to be reflected in the growth of money supply, which, as we know, is ultimately determining the long run inflation in the economy. So I think there's a lot of there's a lot to unpack in that. But that's my my view of what's going on. And what we what we're likely to see uh, coming out of this crisis is a significant increase, in my view, in the size of the Federal Reserve balance sheet. We can dance on the head of a pin and say, is this QE or is this not QE? My view is it is QE. Uh, the multiplier uh, effect onto the economy may be disrupted in the near term, for sure. But ultimately, this is going to have an impact. Right. And there's so much to get into, Michael. I, so there's the solvency of the banking system, and then there's liquidity. Solvency is or the assets exceed the liabilities. You have more than what you owe, and the uh, liquidity is the ability to finance those assets. So the Federal Reserve's uh, discount window, as well as the uh, bank term funding program, where it's extending credit, lending banks uh, cash against collateral, which actually can be posted at par value at a, at a premium to what they would trade at the market, that's supplying an ample amount of liquidity. And a lot of that, as well as the discount window, is responsible for the pickup in the Fed's balance sheet, uh, which is uh, followed by by, by many. Um, but then there's the level of, of solvency, which you know, is affected by the level of rates because as interest rates go up, uh, banks which you know have a, a lot of duration risk, the, the the value of those would go down, and their funding costs uh, might increase as well. Is this primarily a liquidity issue in the banking system, or do you think it's a solvency issue? And uh, dependent on what your answer is, does that impact uh, your your view of what the Fed ultimately will do? Yes, uh, I, I think the, well, the answer is yes to most of, most of your questions. I think the, the first thing is, that, yes, it is a liquidity uh, liquidity problem, that's for sure. That's why I've said it's the banks that are really getting hit here. 
uh, not really the borrowers, and that's telling you it's about funding and liquidity, and there's a problem. Uh, there could well be ultimately a solvency problem, because at the end of the day, if you look at the bank term funding program that the Fed's put in place, it's effectively meaning that banks that uh, take up this facility are borrowing at one-year rates, and those rates are, are now a tad higher after the rate increase today. But they're basically uh, they're, they're, they're getting as income, they're paying out one-year rates plus 10 bips, but they're actually getting in as income uh, the coupon on the coupon yield on their existing securities. Now, that is below uh, the level of one-year rates, uh, probably significantly. So the Federal Reserve is actually uh, embedding now an operating loss uh, in these banks on their security portfolios. And that comes back to the yield curve being inverted. Now, what you can't have uh, over the long term is an inverted yield curve. So effectively, you've got to have that changing its gradient. And if we're uh, in a situation, as I suggested, where there is more oversight and more involvement in the banking system, uh, both in the US and worldwide, then I think you're looking at a situation where we move very quickly to what I've called yield curve control. Now, yield curve control, as we know, has got, you know, there's, there's a, a uh, yield curve control in Japan right now. You could argue that there's a form of yield curve control in Europe in terms of uh, trying to control spreads between European uh, different sovereign European debts. Uh, there was a long history of US yield curve control uh, during World War II and immediately afterwards. All those episodes, I would say, have actually been pretty successful. And I think it's coming back again. Now, if you think about, uh, to go back to the scenario that I outlined, is if we're in a situation where there's an awful lot of government debt to be sold uh, in the future, and we know the banks are probably going to be on the hook for taking a large part of that, uh, what's the interest rate that the government can stand, uh, you know, maximum interest rate? Now, I would suggest that that is somewhere like, and, you know, I mean, I'm willing to uh, debate this, maybe 5%. You can't have anything more than about 5%. Otherwise, yep. you get uh, a big spiraling out in the interest bill uh in uh for the for the US or for any other sovereign government worldwide. So right. And Michael just has to say the Federal Reserve today just raised interest rates from 4.75% to 5%. So that's 5% your threshold and we're there. Yeah, okay. That but we're there on the at the short the policy end. Right. So I'm talking here about long-term debt. So I think it's very difficult in over the medium term or long term to get the interest rate on longer term debt up much above 5% because the interest bill would be too high. Now, if you then said that the banks have got to earn a spread, and let's say you need a yield curve of, say, 100 basis points, then you're talking about a, a ceiling on the policy rate of about 4%, 4 percentage point. So in other words, we're above that level now. Now, if that's the case, that is effectively a yield curve control process if they want to maintain that. And if you run through the maths, and it may be sort of difficult right here on air to run through the maths, but very generally, if you look at the growth rate of federal debt, it's got to be mathematically equal to something like the primary budget deficit plus the interest rate, uh, prevailing interest rate on the debt. Now, let me just try and uh, uh, try and go through these numbers just very briefly and simply. So if you've got a primary budget deficit of 3% and you assume that uh, let's say the debt GDP ratio in the US is 100%, which is near as damn it it is, and you've got an interest rate on your existing debt of 5%, that's basically telling you that three plus five equals eight. So your debt is growing at 8%. That's what money supply will grow at 
if you've got the banks effectively monetizing that, and if you said the economy is growing at two, your underlying inflation rate is eight minus two is 6%. So that's what we're looking at as a very, very different world out here. And this is what I'm, I'm trying to say. If this is all correct, this analysis is correct that this is going on, and what we're looking at is the early stages of this particular path, then assets like cryptocurrencies and gold need to have a step higher valuation jump. Because you got, my, you got my attention. World. <laughs> um, well, actually, I well, so I, I agree with you, Michael. I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And I want to get into the, the nitty gritty of sort of what you were talking about in terms of nationalizing the banking sector, because that's been sort of suggested. And there's a lot of kind of strong pushback that that's not actually what's happening. So I want to dig in there. But before we go, uh, you know, super deep in the weeds, I do want to get your your thoughts on a couple of things just as it relates to the, the FOMC. I'd love to kind of parse out your reaction to the, the market reaction uh, to what, what Chair Powell said. And let me, let me caveat this by saying that usually, very, very often, the, the initial market reaction uh, to things like the FOMC is wrong. You know, but what you had was, uh, it's a little bit confusing to me. You, know, you had um, the NASDAQ and Bitcoin both down. You also had the two-year down. So the, the two questions that I have for you is, one, it appears there's a discrepancy in between what Chair Powell is telling the market uh, is what he's telling us interest rates going to do versus what the market actually believes. And basically starting over the past couple of weeks, the two year has been a one way track down uh, because the, you know, my, my guess is that um, the market has anticipated that Chair Powell has basically hit the liquidity floor, right? Or he's reached the, the amount of what he can do in terms of rate hikes. He says he keeps telling us that there there could potentially be more. So I'd love to get your opinion on that. And then if you could talk to us a little bit about the market reaction to the FOMC. Okay, I think the, the first thing is how much more can rates go up? I think that we're, as I said right at the beginning, um, I think we're a lot nearer the peak than we were last week or 10 days ago. Uh, yeah. And I think that's the impression that one gets uh, out of the statement. Uh, that doesn't say anything about the duration by which rates are going to remain at high levels. And it's long been my, uh, you know, my, my argument is that the, the problem that central banks have given us, uh, which is uh, zero interest rates or very low interest rates for a long time, created a problem of a huge debt pile. And the world economy is saddled with this big debt pile. And that's the problem we've got. We've got to get out of, we've got to get rid of this debt. So if you have too low interest rates, that is an incentive for debt. Okay, taking on more debt. You can't go back to that world of very low interest rates. And I think all these central bankers understand that point. The problem is, though, is if you keep interest rates, you keep jacking up interest rates, you then create funding problems in the system. So, you know, you, you're really walking a knife edge. And this is the, the difficulty they've got. So in my view, what you've got to go back to is a policy that was originally foreshadowed uh, more than a, a century ago. A uh, century and a half ago in Britain uh, by somebody called Walter Badgett, who was a financial journalist, but he's the sort of doyen of central bankers. Jim mm -hmm. Grant in the US, well-known uh, banking analyst, uh, had written a wonderful biography of, uh, of Walter Badgett. And what Walter Badgett's point was, was that what central banks have got to do, and this was in the early days of the Bank of England acting as the central bank or lender of the last resort, is he said, what you've got to do is to lend freely, lots of liquidity in other words, against good collateral at a high interest rate. And the central banks for the last decade have been doing the absolute reverse of that. Now, what we've got to get back to is a sensible world. 
And I think what that means is that rates probably have to stay up at high levels for longer. But there's got to be more liquidity in the system to try and underpin uh, the funding structure. And we've, what we've got is a fragile funding structure. And the reason we've got a fragile funding structure is that basically because of all this debt, world financial markets have shifted from being new financing vehicles where you finance new capital spending to being primarily refinancing vehicles or rolling over existing debt. Now, let me just give you some figures to back that up. Okay. If you look at the amount of debt that's out there, it's about $350 trillion. Okay. With an average five-year maturity, what you're looking at is probably $70 trillion a year that needs to be rolled over. If you're going to roll over debt, you need balance sheet capacity to do that. Balance sheet capacity is liquidity. So liquidity is absolutely paramount in this equation. Think of that $70 trillion against the how much money is raised as new capital every year in world capital markets, which is $10 trillion. So you're seven to one in terms of the ratio of refinancing to new financing. That's not what the textbooks tell you. And what that says in that world, the flow of liquidity is far, far more important than the level of interest rates. Think of it as a homeowner. If you want to refinance your home mortgage, okay, you're slightly less concerned about the interest rate and really concerned about whether you're going to get the role or not. Because if you don't get the role, you're homeless. And the same with a corporate. If you can't refinance your debt, you're default. And that's really the issue. It, it, it focuses the mind. And that's why liquidity is so important. Now, I think that if you go back pre-2008, policymakers didn't get that point. I think what they're doing is they're getting that very quickly. And if you look at the alacrity with which the federal authorities moved to support SVB and you know other US banks that were uh, in trouble, it shows that they're very, very conscious about this. And Chair Powell, I think, made it clear that although there were no discussions about the balance sheet runoff of treasuries, that's an open question. If it needs to be addressed, they'll address it. So I think the, the Fed is there in a way that we were maybe unsure about whether the Fed was there in uh, mid-2008. You know, look at the speed with which the Fed opened up uh, dollar swap lines uh, to Europe uh, and, in fact, the world uh, 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 last weekend. I mean, this is, this is a bold move. Central bankers are clearly concerned about funding, and I think they're much more uh, you know, up with events now than they were at, at previous times. Right. And you can see that on the Fed's balance sheet. Uh, Michael, you track liquidity, many aspects to liquidity. One of them is central bank liquidity and the Fed very prominent. We can see if people zoom in and they you know, put their uh, screen very close to their face at the very right edge of that screen, you have a tick up in the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. It exploded higher during 2020. Uh, 2020 and 2021, it gradually drifted higher. Quantitative tightening enacted last year, a very gradual, slow decline. Not as big of a decline as people thought because of mortgage-backed securities. They weren't selling. They were extending in duration. That's a whole other point. But that little blip up, is is this an injection of liquidity? Fed Chair Jay Powell, Michael, today said uh, people can rely on us to supply ample liquidity. Is mm -hmm. it the discount window? Is it the bank term funding program? Is this quantitative easing? Is that not even a, a good point? How much uh, bigger do you think this balance sheet will, will get, and, and why is it significant? Well, I think if you if you work through the maths, it could it could work out to be a sizable jump. It could be, in theory, in extremis, fifty percent higher. Okay, and the reason I get to that figure is that if you look at the division between, let's say, smaller banks in the U.S. and the bigger banks, start with the smaller banks. 
they've got effectively about $1 trillion of eligible securities that they can post to the Fed uh, in this uh, uh, bank term funding program, okay? So if the Federal Reserve supports them through that mechanism, even disregarding the discount window borrowing, uh, that would actually increase the left-hand side, the asset side of the Fed balance sheet uh, by close to a trillion dollars, okay? Uh, and that would immediately come through in presumably bank reserves. Now, it may well be that that, uh, that process involves a migration of deposits out of the small banks towards the big banks, okay? But then you've got to ask the question that if you've got such a dis disparity between the rates, the deposit rates that large US banks offer compared with what you can get in the money market fund, why should you be holding money in a large bank? Why shouldn't you migrate to a money market fund? And if you migrate to a money market fund, then the banks lose reserves and the big banks lose reserves. So if they, and they lose deposits, of course, as well. Now, if they had to post this collateral to the Fed term lending program, funding program, they've got probably about 4 trillion of eligible securities that they could post. So what you could be talking about here is something like somewhere between four and five trillion increase in the asset side of the Fed balance sheet. Now, I won't get to that point. Mm -hmm. uh, this, I'm talking about an extremist. But what I'm trying to show you here is the elasticity of the system. Now, the problem comes is that what we're talking about here is liquidity in the money markets. And if you look at the key number to look at on the Fed balance sheet is really uh, the reserves of the banks, the reserves the banks hold at the Federal Reserve. And that is an indication of the amount of money in the money markets. Now, the reverse repo, which is another element on the balance sheet, is actually a withdrawal of liquidity from the markets. Okay, The Fed is basically holding that money on its balance sheet. Now, many people say, uh, and I think it's an ill-informed comment, that the RRP, the reverse repo program, is indicating there's abundant liquidity in the system. It's not telling you anything about the abundance of liquidity. It's telling you about the generosity of the Federal Reserve in offering such high interest rates uh, on its instruments, on its uh, uh, reverse repo instruments. That's why it's there. It's actually money that's being withdrawn from the system. And you could get a situation whereby the smaller banks lose deposits to the big banks and the big banks lose deposits to the money market funds. And in that situation, what you've got is a tightening of liquidity conditions in the US system. And the Federal Reserve would probably have to act on that to get bank reserves up. Now, one of the things that I think we've learned in the last 10 days is what is the minimum operating level for reserves, okay? Now, our view across border was that that level was about $2.7 trillion, okay? Prior to this crisis, the Fed was operating bank reserves at about $3 trillion, okay? And in fact, since the British guilt crisis in September of last year, that reserve number on the Fed balance sheet has flatlined at $3 trillion. And I think the Federal Reserve was trying to tell us something then, that the British guilt crisis was a warning, a little bit like Bear Stearns in the spring of 2008. Mm. That was the warning. That was the warning bell that said, we've got funding problems. There are funding problems here in the system. Okay, Somehow the plumbing isn't working properly. And what the Federal Reserve has engineered, in my view, and I think it's deliberate, but who knows, that that bank reserve number flatlined at $3 trillion. Now, US academics 
who are experts on looking at, at bank funding, Jonathan Wright at John Hopkins being one in particular, have already cited a level of 2.5 trillion for the minimum operating level, reserve operating level for US banks. So we were getting pretty close to these thresholds, okay? And I think what we learned with SVB and others is that it's not 2.5 or 2.7, it's probably three, okay? The problem is that once you get a crisis, the demand for reserves goes up. So in actual fact, that's three rising. And the level of reserves in the system now is a short 3.5 trillion. So I would suspect that's got to go up anyway. So I think what you're looking at here is potentially uh, a, a significant increase in the size of the Fed balance sheet. And as I said, we can dance on the head of a pin. So is this QE or not? Uh, in my view, it's a liquidity easing. And that's what the system wants. OK, uh, whether it has a big multiplier effect on the economy is a completely different question. But the Federal Reserve has backstopped the system, which is what it's doing. And it's done it, I think, very effectively. I've got a I've got a question for you for you, Michael. So, um, you know, we were talking you were talking about uh, the the banking system so, sort of starting to nationalize uh, in a sense. I do want to say uh, I think Yellen, despite some comments from uh, yesterday, she actually said that they're not considering coming in and guaranteeing all bank deposits. So there is some limit in terms of in terms of what they're willing to do, but. You know, there's a there's a great quote from from Chris Cole from Artemis Capital, which has always stuck with me, which is you can't destroy risk. You can only transform it. So, you know, I think the vast the the majority perception, right, when the FDIC and the government rides in is they say we are taking care of a whole bunch of risk that's in the market. Whereas I kind of generally try to ask, okay, there was a bunch of risk here that existed in the banking system. How is it being transformed? So if the federal government, some mix of like the government and the FDIC are guaranteeing larger and larger parts of the banking system. My question to you is, what's the transformation of risk that's going on? Well, I think that I think it's a very interesting point that you make, Michael. I think that you know the first thing to say is that uh, there are obviously different types of risk that we've got to try and try and evaluate. And if mm. you look at the problems that the banking system essentially has, uh, we're talking about credit risk and we're talking about maturity risk or duration risk. Okay, now 2008 was very much about credit risk. This crisis is a lot more about duration risk. Now, the Federal Reserve can effectively resolve both. And the more the Federal Reserve balance sheet expands, and that encourages, if you like, an expansion of the general private sector balance sheet, what they're doing is they're effectively reducing credit risk and duration risk in the system. Okay, And that's what the Federal Reserve can do. But to take up your analogy of the balloon, you're squeezing that balloon, you're reducing credit risk and duration risk. But what you're doing is introducing another risk, which may be inflation risk. And that's the problem, that what we know is that that money can, that the, the money that the Federal Reserve creates can seep out. It goes into asset markets pretty quickly, OK, uh, because it's part of the financial sector. But that can seep again into the real economy and create high street inflation. Mm -hmm. um, the Federal Reserve creates monetary inflation or monetary deflation. Those are the only choices that a central bank really has, okay? But if you look at high street inflation, high street inflation is a cocktail of monetary inflation and cost inflation. So we've had the cost inflation because of, you know, what was happening with Putin's Russia and the COVID crisis, and that gave us some cost inflation, but we also had a dose of monetary inflation on top because of the growth in the Fed balance sheet. What I'm saying is if you look forward, you know, parche what may happen to costs in the future, but we may be getting uh, significant and permanent growth 
of monetary inflation. And that's coming through because of not because of this problem per se, but because basically you've got very bad fiscal arithmetic in the West per se. And I come back to the fact, look, America is the cleanest shirt in the laundry here for sure. But there's a it's still got problems. The rest of the world, you know, big problems. It, it's all about aging demographics and the fact that you've got mandatory spending, which is shooting up, where your tax base, which is working population, is under downward pressure. That's still very overtaxed and they can't get revenue up. And then you've got the added problem of increased defense spending, which is coming through. So how do you square the circle? It's really difficult. And you need, if you like, the banks to play a role in this. Now, for, yeah, maybe by some accident of history, we've just, we've just stumbled on the solution. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, Lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying, Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. For the bank's balance sheet to continue going up, uh, for banks to draw upon the the bank term funding program or the discount window, uh, that scenario that that you envisioned would be one in which banks have continued uh, continue to have a liquidity crisis. It's not just Silicon Valley Bank. It's not Signature Bank. You know, First Republic has to go down and take others others with it. And in that environment, deposit flight ensues, and uh, regional banks have to pledge their agency government securities as collateral to get money from the Federal Reserve. What do you think are the odds of that, you know, the uh, lightning doesn't strike twice or three times and people just keep their money in the regional banks and everything is fine in that world. And I want to know your, your, what do you think the odds of that? Does the Federal Reserve's balance sheet still go up? Do we still have, uh, you know, is liquidity from the central bank still on the way? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think that, you know, in my view, I mean, we we track liquidity pretty closely, as you know. And, you know, I, I've been on record and said many times since that the low in global liquidity was basically October last year. That was the floor. Uh, it's picking up. Bad things happen. We know bad things happen at the low point of the liquidity cycle. And hey, presto, what we've got again is another example of that happening. Um, you know, banks don't go bust or very rarely at the peak of liquidity cycles. They tend to go bust at the bottom of liquidity cycles. And that's, if you like, the, the factor, the instrumental factor that causes the cycle to turn around. So I think that now what central banks have got to start to do is to expand their balance sheets. Mm-hmm. And that's what I see happening worldwide. So this is what we're doing. You know, let's, you know, for a moment, step across uh, the pond to what's happening in Europe. Uh, you know, Europe, European, the European Central Bank uh, plans to um, shrink its balance sheet this year, on my estimates, by between 15 and 20%. Well, good luck with that. Uh, I don't think that they're going to be anywhere near doing that uh, because you know, the, the state of the banking system in Europe is, uh, you know, certainly I would suggest more fragile than maybe in the US, but, you know, mm-hmm. hey, prove me wrong. 
um, I, that, that's that's a risk. So I think what you've got to do is you the, the the important you know the important central banks in the world are really the U.S. Fed and the People's Bank of China. Those are the ones that really matter. The ECB, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan will come on and follow what the Fed is doing, uh, as far as I can see. But those are the two independent voices. And what you're seeing is, on my estimates, the Federal Reserve is beginning to add liquidity to the system now. Uh, it's actually, if you look at the detail, it's following almost exactly the same path that it followed through uh, 2001, 2002, uh, in terms of its liquidity injections in the markets. We're around the trough and it's beginning to pick up. And as I say, I think it's going further. And then if you look at what's happening in China, the People's Bank of China, through uh, December and January of, of this year, injected about 3 trillion yuan, so you know a short half a, uh, half a trillion US dollars, into Chinese financial markets. Uh, that was a huge liquidity impulse. It represented three and a half times the total amount they had put in in the previous um, th uh, two years. Uh, admittedly, it came off a little bit in February, but what they've been doing laterally through March is injecting a lot more liquidity in the system. And the PBOC in China is very, very important for the health of the Chinese economy or the tempo of the Chinese economy. And hence, by definition, because China is such an elephant in the room economically uh, for the world economy overall. And China is restarting or attempting to restart on this estimation. So you've got that. And then the US is really the paramount central bank, which influences financial markets worldwide. So these two are, uh, are really beginning, as far as I can see, to turn the money taps on. Now, if that's the case, what you want is to increasingly think about monetary hedges, um, or what I call monetary hedges, which are basically uh, securities or instruments that hedge against monetary inflation. The Obvious one to that is gold, because gold has been longstanding as a monetary inflation hedge. And I make this subtle but very important distinction between a monetary inflation hedge and a high street inflation hedge. Uh, gold is not always a great high street inflation hedge, but it's a very good monetary inflation hedge. And the new monetary inflation hedge are things like Bitcoin. Now, this is not a recommendation to buy Bitcoin or anything like that. I'm not a Bitcoin analyst, but all I'm saying is these are likely to be uh, pretty decent measures of liquidity. So if liquidity goes up, that's what you've got to expect uh, to see as a barometer of that move. Gold going up and Bitcoin going up. So, so Michael, uh, I, I'm in I'm in uh, agreement with the vast majority of what you what you just outlined there. I suppose uh, just again to kind of bring it to some of the events that are that have been happening today. You know, I'm looking at my the price of Bitcoin on my screen here, and it's basically been in free fall uh, post FOMC. I mean, it's down about you know four and a half four and a half some odd percent. Uh, so, my question to you is, uh, you know, do you think the market you know believes the same thing that you believe in terms of we've seen the liquidity bottom already? Basically, this last October, we're already starting to see, you know, overt injections over with the PBOC in China, more covert injections here uh, in the United States, and that it's going to be liquidity positive from here. Well, I don't, Do think, the market, I don't think the market agrees with that because the market's the market and the market has many different opinions. But mm. uh, uh, there may be some people in the market that believe it. And there's an awful lot of people that probably don't believe it. But, mm. you know, our remit and what we do is we look closely at liquidity. Ever since, you know, the days when I was at Salomon Brothers in the U.S., I mean, this was the this is what uh, you know. I learned at uh, you know the feet of people like Henry Kaufman. Henry Kaufman, you know, a gentleman now aged ninety five, but tremendous wisdom. I mean, go back and read some of the things that Henry used to write. I mean, he has nailed this current crisis yet again. Uh, you know, even in his writings of twenty years ago, he foresaw the future and what um, 
you know, these problems in funding markets. So I think you've got to understand that, you know, Salomon was a were fantastic brand name and franchise, but it really made its name and its reputation and its profitability from understanding money flows in the world. And that's exactly what we're trying to do now. And so mm. tracking liquidity, understanding where the money is, is absolutely fundamental to investment. And that's what people have got to do more and more. Uh, central banks are increasingly uh, playing a big role in that. So we need to understand what the central banks are doing. But it's not always the central banks that are the key drivers. It can also be the banking system, as we saw prior to 2008. Right. And I just want to know, uh, note that, Mike, you're correct. Uh, Bitcoin, gold stocks all falling in the, the wake of the Federal Reserve meeting today. but Gold and Bitcoin and even stocks had been rallying over the past few weeks, and Bitcoin had gone from you know, about twenty thousand dollars a month ago to twenty eight thousand dollars. So, uh, what's that? A forty percent rally. So, the if liquidity it, that the, the price action recently does fit that narrative of liquidity is supporting liquidity sensitive uh, assets. Michael, I just want to ask you: when the central bank is supplying liquidity, there's quantitative easing when it expands its balance sheet, and that is. Our balance sheet is going to go up no matter what, no matter whatever the banks think, whatever people think, our balance sheet is going up. We don't care. And then there are special facilities such as the discount window. Now the bank's new uh, bank term funding program, BTFP, where w- the money's here if you, wa- if you want it, but we're only going to you know, ex- expand our balance sheet if you want it. So mm-hmm. if the banks don't need it, the balance sheet doesn't go up. And the reason we had a pickup in that chart is people, uh, banks uh, tapped the discount window at BTFP for funds. So how do you expect the Fed's balance sheet to increase uh, in absence of the those programs that rely on banks needing capital? And needing okay, capital? Well, okay let, let me answer that question. In terms of, of how we see the world and how we operate, liquidity is a driving factor. And one of the most important transmissions for liquidity is in the term structure of interest rates. If you see liquidity expanding, the yield curve, in other words, the term structure will steepen, the yield curve will begin to be upward sloping, and you'll get a steeper and steeper uh, yield curve as liquidity goes in. As liquidity comes out, you start to see uh, a flattening and inverting yield curve. And there's about a six-month lead time between movements on liquidity and uh, what happens in the yield curve. Now, what we've seen uh, in the world is tightening liquidity. Bank funding has dried up. But fundamentally, where you're seeing this is through the negative effects of an inverted yield curve. This is what's giving the banks a lot of trouble for the simple reason that, as we know, um, you know, to give the example of the bank term funding program, if you go to this uh, Fed window, you are going to have to pay the Fed uh, 1% rates, and you're only going to get a coupon return from your security portfolio of, of probably uh, you know, maybe 50 to 100 basis points below that. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you're, you've, you've got an operating loss. So this is the situation that you're in. You can't correct the banking, the funding problems in the banking system until you've got an upward sloping yield curve. And that's really a fundamental point. Now, why haven't you had, uh, you know, maybe these problems historically when you go back? Probably because the banking system wasn't as leveraged. Uh, Maybe the funding structure was better than it is now. But the inverted yield curve is exposing a lot of these funding problems. And we do have a funding problem in the world where you can you can see, and I'm going to get wonkish here, but if you look at the term structure, there's an element in the term structure that economists or financial analysts will know, which is called the term premium. Now, the term premium, you can watch every day because the New York Fed publishes estimates of the term premium on, on the US 
10-year uh, bond and other uh, tenors. But if you look at that data, it is near its all-time lows. Now, why is the term premia so low and in many cases negative at the moment? And that's saying there's a shortage of collateral in the system. And that is one of the problems which is exposed in this whole funding structure. Now, what we're in is a world where credit is very dependent on collateral. In other words, pre-2008, uh, you know, banks lent to each other on trust. Now what they need is collateral. You need the security of, uh, of an instrument like a government bond or think of a mortgage, you need uh, a house to borrow against, etc. You need an asset uh, to, if you like, secure that loan. And in that, in that world of, um, of collateral, what's really important is how much you can margin your collateral because that determines how much credit you can get. Now, one of the key factors to watch, and these are the two things that I would watch very closely going forward, what you've got to look at is the volatility in the bond market. If you get high volatility, it's very difficult to get to basically use that collateral efficiently because the haircut you get on the on the on the collateral go up. In other words, uh, the lenders will start to say, "Well, okay, we're very uncertain about what the value is, so we're going to give you a big haircut on that uh, on that." Uh, uh, on that collateral. And whereas you could have borrowed 98%, you're only going to now borrow 90% or 85% or whatever the, the amount is. So that has a direct effect on credit. Now, my point here is that it may well be that the uh, Federal Reserve injects liquidity, it may improve collateral, it, there may be more treasure issuance. But if you've got a lot of volatility in the bond markets, you are not going to get liquidity creation. And one of the things that the authorities have got to do is to get bond volatility down pretty quickly. Now, the move index is one way to watch that. The move index is published by Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Uh, it's an indicator that they put forward. It's, it is a comparable indicator of the VIX uh, for equities, but it's much more important than the VIX. Don't worry about looking at the VIX anymore. It's secondary. Look at the move index because the move index is driving the system. And that's what people have got to start to watch. Now, the move index, when it was first designed, if I remember correctly, when it went above, it's an index which roughly uh, runs between about 50 and maybe 150. People used to say if it goes above 150, it tells you that the authorities, the Treasury or the Fed, have lost control of the bond market. What did it go to a few days ago? 200. Uh, what is it today? I believe it's about 160. So it's coming down, but it go, needs to go well below 150 and probably below 100. So bond mm. volatility has got to come down. So watch the move index. And the other thing is watch the reverse repo, which is a daily number that you can look at the volume of reverse repos that uh, the Federal Reserve basically has on its balance sheet. And if that starts to spike higher, then it's probably telling you that liquidity is draining out of the banking system. It's going to the money market funds. Right. So uh, money market funds used to own a bunch of commercial paper. Now, I think over half of that is directly parked at the Federal Reserve with at the reverse right. repo facility. The point you said earlier, Michael, was that when people say there's $2.2 trillion in the reverse repo, liquidity is ample. I see why they say that because it's $2.2 trillion. That's a, that's a lot of money, but it's trapped there. And people are so putting close. all the money uh, sort of in the in a black box that cannot really interact with the rest of the uh, the, the financial system. Also, right. the volatility you reference, that's how much things move. There's realized volatility, how much things actually move in the past. And then there's implied volatility. What is the market pricing for forward volatility? 
uh, VIX's implied volatility for equities. Uh, move is is that for bonds. When interest rates were at zero last year and you know, Fed Powell raised, 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 the market was taught, caught totally off guard. So the move index spiked higher. But uh, corresponding with that sort of October pivot uh, or po- uh, po- policy that you've tracked, uh, the move index went down and, and that coincided with a pretty significant rally in a lot of risk Absolutely. assets. And now the move is back up or it was up because we had this banking crisis. So the, mm-hmm. uh, t- uh, the the hikes that were priced out for the rest of the year have turned into cuts. So you had a, an immense reversal that was very dramatic. But do you see uh, now that sort of, okay, maybe we'll do a 25 basis point in, in May, but you know, we're not, let's be honest, we're not getting to 7%, probably not getting to 6%, maybe 5.25%, but I think things are pretty clear now. Do you think that in that environment where there's a lot more certainty, the move action index could actually come down? And it should. Yeah. Yes, it, it should come down. That's one of the things to watch. And I think what the authorities have got to do is to make sure that index does come down because that's the key to, if you like, leverage. Um, and if you well, put it another way, the collateral multiplier in the system. Um, if the move index comes down, the collateral multiplier will go up and they, therefore you're going to get more liquidity created by the private sector. So if you think about it in two moving parts, the uh, the government sector in terms of bond issuance and in terms of the Federal Reserve balance sheet is determining the amount of collateral in the system, but the private sector is determining the size of the collateral multiplier. And that is driven to a very large extent by factors like uh, the move index, how much volatility there is in the system. All right, that, that makes sense. Uh, um, Mike, maybe it's time to open up to, to questions in a, in a little bit, but I also just want to ask about the degree to which the turmoil in the banking sector will cause banks to contract credit and curb their mm-hmm. lending, which would be very disinflationary, perhaps deflationary, perhaps recessionary. Jay Powell actually said as much, and he referenced that fact. He, it's the base case of the Federal Reserve that the turmoil in the banking sector will cause banks to curb lending somewhat. And he yeah. said that they that may be equivalent of tightening uh, of, of a rate hike, which is pretty remarkable. In fact, it, it could be even more of a, of a rate hike. How significant of a factor do you think that is? And what are you seeing in the bank lending markets right now with regards to liquidity? Okay, I think the the first thing to say is it was a very significant statement. Um, He actually said that there'd be a sharp tightening or expected a sharp tightening of credit conditions as a result. He also said that these financial condition indexes that are uh, are very public now, there's a Bloomberg number, uh, there's a Chicago Fed number, there's a Goldman Sachs number, of financial conditions, he said were biased because they were largely equity uh, of volatility measures. They didn't include uh, many metrics on lending. And it was his fear that lending conditions had tightened. Now, we look at lending conditions pretty closely. And what I would say is that maybe this is a takeaway. It's very clear that you've had uh, a, a fall in or a tightening in credit conditions in terms of the appetite of loan officers to make loans. And that's very true in the latest surveys. However, and this is the caveat, that lending survey correlates really very closely with business business confidence. So if you start to see business confidence in the US bottoming and beginning to pick up, and I'm thinking here of something like the ISM index, what you will see is is parry pursue with that, you see uh, loan officers getting a lot more optimistic. So I'm not going to say it's a given that we've got, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're staring down uh, a black hole. We're not. In my view, I think the economy is actually pretty robust in the US. And all the indications that we have 
would suggest that the economy is probably seeing a bottom. I'm getting this information from the fixed income markets. Looking at the entrails of the fixed income markets, it looks like a bottom in the economy is coming about mid-year. Now, we may be wrong on that. We maybe have to finesse that a tad, but I would say that's what it's looking like. If that is correct, then the stock market is more or less on track because the stock market normally bottoms about six months before the turn in the economy. So that looks right. Let me say one other point about that. Stanley Druckermiller, the renowned US investor, always used to say that the best, uh, the best economist is the inside of the stock market. And what he meant by that, or what he was talking mm. about, was the relative performance of cyclical stocks against defensive stocks. And if you look, if you plot an index, and don't take my word for it, please do it yourselves, look at an index of S&P cyclicals less S&P defensives against the tempo of the economy. It almost goes one for one. Uh, but the stock market, is a fan the relative, is a fantastic indicator of what the economy is doing. And what you're still looking at, even despite the volatility of the last week, is it still looks at cyclicals are outperforming defensives. Mm. Except for banks. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe except for banks, but I wouldn't necessarily say the banks are in that cyclical category. But hey, you know, we can right, debate right. that. I've got uh, just one more question for Michael before we turn it over to, to audience questions, Jack. There was one, there was one question uh, which was asked of, of Jerome Powell. He made a comment apparently during the, the January FOMC, I believe, about some, uh, some worries, potential worries in the non for non-bank lenders. Um, and my question to you is there's an enormous amount of focus on solvency around banks, probably rightly so, right? Um, but banks, uh, there's, there's an enormous amount of uh, demand for funding outside of strictly banks, right? Which this is like broadly referred to as the shadow banking sector, right? right? And a lot of the interest rate risk, right, that banks have taken, I would have to imagine these shadow banks, uh, they, they basically have a very similar problem. The thing is, it's a much more opaque sort of market. The forcing function isn't depositors leaving, it's capital calls, right? Um, yep. And and it's more risky and less regulated. So my, you know, my question to you is, and they don't have this access to this BTFP facility. So my question to you is, are we being a little bit too myopic here about focusing on any one particular bank failure? And maybe we're missing the forest for the trees when there's a problem in this, this kind of shadow banking, less regulated, uh, you know, extender yeah. of credit. I think you're, you're, you've nailed it. I think it's spot on. But I think that the way that the Federal Reserve addressed, initially addressed the SVB problem was to say it was an idiosyncratic problem. Mm. And that's pretty much what Chair Powell was saying. This, guy, this, this is an outlier. But the solution they put in is actually a general solution uh, for lots of things. And yeah. the shadow banks clearly don't get addressed in this directly. But what the shadow banks will depend upon are things like the stability of collateral in the system. And that's part of the reason why I'm saying you've got to get volatility down, uh, in, uh, particularly in the, in the treasury market, because that's where a lot of the lending will come on the back of security portfolios. Now, we don't know the underlying health of the shadow banking system. There's been phenomenal work done in the US about what the shadow banking industry is uh, and you know its needs and its risks and whatever, but there are still black holes, okay? Um, and that's the problem. So if you're shaking the tree, shaking the money tree, uh, you can get accidents. And this is the problem that we face. There may be another one around the corner we don't know, but this is the peril that you run at very low levels of liquidity. So this is why I come back to the fact that 
you know, it's low liquidity is the problem right now. You've got to get more liquidity into the system. But if you want to control the system longer term, it goes back to the budget rule. What you've got to do is to lend at high interest rates against good collateral, but you lend freely. You create a lot of liquidity. And the problem that we've had is in a world where you've got capital markets, which are being used as a refinancing mechanism for debt, you can't also use those capital markets as the axe to try and control inflation. It doesn't work because basically your needs for refinancing may coincide uh, you know, with uh, periods when uh, inflation is, is high uh, and you basically are squeezing just at the wrong time. And that's very different from a world of new financing when in actual fact you're squeezing uh, at a time when capital investment is down and probably you want it to go down further. So in other words, the world is topsy-turvy uh, under this refinancing mechanism. And that's why liquidity is absolutely critical to watch. Excellent. That's a that's a very helpful explanation, Michael. And now uh, I want I want to take this chance to answer any questions from from the audience. And guys, if if you're listening, thanks for all these comments that you're dropping here. But uh, definitely, if you have questions for Michael, make sure to drop them, and uh, we'll get through as many as we can in the time that we have. So this first question for you actually comes for um, uh, this is on the on the topic of banks hedging interest rate risks. So SVB was criticized pretty heavily for not hedging. Uh, but how could the banks have, this, the question is basically, how could they have hedged uh, while being profitable? And the the thing that I would append and, and add to that is the accounting treatment, right, of hold to maturity of a lot of these assets basically made it so that it, uh, these uh, these bonds didn't hit the, the P&L or the capital account. So a hedge, if they had actually put that on the way it's the accounting treatment works in the US is the hedge would have actually appeared on the P&L and made the bank's profits look all, all wonky, right? So, you right. know, is this criticism, both from a profitability and a P&L appearance standpoint, is this a fair criticism of SBV and for the banking sector writ large? Well, I think it's it's the result of um, with the thing that we go back to, which is an inverted yield curve. Mm. And this is, this is the problem they run into because during a period of an inverted yield curve, banking becomes less profitable. Uh, and so, you know, it, it you've, you either you know fess up to that and report it, but then your shareholders won't like that, or you find ways of essentially disguising that. And at the end of the day, that's really what we're talking about here. So the question is, is that you know normally in a world in 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 terms of the how the economy and the financial system works, you can't run an inverted yield curve for very long because it creates problems and it almost automatically uh, you know uh, uh, it basically moves to a positive slope. And that's that's what we're looking at. Rates have to come down. And this is maybe the the sort of the lesson out of this whole thing is that what we're really saying here is that this is an unsustainable situation uh, where short term rates are above long term rates. You've got to get the yield curve to a more positive slope. And that's why I come back to this point that we have to be moving into a world of yield curve control. I don't think there's any choice in that. Um, uh, and that's the reality, uh, not least because the uh, the fiscal authorities have got so much debt they've got to they've got to shovel at us in the next few years. Uh, Michael, when you say yield curve control, when I first heard that term, I thought it referred exclusively to pinning rates at let's say two percent, and the bond market wants to sell off to three percent, so price down yields up, but you we're keeping it two percent. We're going to buy it if it ever goes to two point zero one percent, but. You know, I, I I subsequently learned that in Japan, uh, it was actually to keep rates uh, uh, below a, a certain uh, level because 
uh, they wanted they wanted an upward ceiling. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so in the, in this yield curve that you envision, is it to let's say keep the ten year pinned at three percent because the ten year wants to go to five percent, or keeping it three percent because the ten year wants to go to one percent? And when I say want to, I mean you know market forces. Well, I, I think that the you know the yield curve control is a is a generic term and it can mean many different things. And as I said, you know what Japan is doing right now is very different from what the U.S. did uh, in the 1940s and early 50s, and it's very different from what the Europeans are doing. Uh, but basically, they all they're all different flavors of yield curve control. And what I'm saying is that yield curve control fundamentally here, uh, the first thing you must do, first condition is you must get an upward sloping yield curve, and that's something that needs to be addressed. Now, one of the problems with that statement. Is that if you've got such a negative term premium, this is a, a, a wonkish bond point, but it's very important to uh, if people think about it. If you've got a negative term premium, it's very difficult to get an upward sloping yield curve, okay? Um, technically. So you need to get that, that addressed. And I think that's a question of collateral, lack of collateral in the system. Now, uh, that may be addressed ultimately because there's a lot more fiscal issuance coming and the Federal Reserve okay. may have to put more liquidity in the system. But that's the first point. You need an upward sloping yield curve, and maybe the banks need 100 basis points of spread between the long end and the short end. But you know, we can debate what that is. The second criteria is that you can't have interest rates at the long end so high that it starts to inflate the budget deficit significantly and create too much debt, uh, because basically the interest bill is eating a large part of the deficit right now. And every percentage point uh, you know, on the interest bill magnifies that debt burden. So you've got to keep in the interest bill lower. So what that says is that if that magic number is 5% uh, for bond yields at the long end, say the 10-year tenor, uh, and you want 100 basis points of yield curve slope to benefit the banks, then what you've got to have is a 4% policy rate at the front end. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's how the maths will work. There's a variety of ways of getting there, but I think what you've got to do is to have the Federal Reserve and the Treasury working in tandem together. I think they do work together, but you know, officially they are separate. And so do you think that let's say 10 year the 10 year treasury notes will go higher or lower from here, given given what you just said? Well, my my view for this year, if that's what you're you're asking, is that I think this year I would say the 10-year bond is a wash. Because I think that you know you, we may be near the peak in uh, in terminal in the implied terminal policy rate that's embedded within the term structure. You know, arguably it may be there; it may come down a tad from where we are. But I think the problem you've got is that term premium, which is so negative, can almost only go up from here. Now, what you've seen, um, if my memory serves me correctly, since the SVB crisis, you've had terminal policy rates dropping by about um, 70 basis points. And you've had term premium rising by 35 basis points. So you've actually had the 10 year down effectively by about 30 or 40 basis points or there or thereabouts, okay. But the problem is that the more that you, the more that you get policy rates down, implied policy rates in the term structure down, the more you're likely to get term premium going up again. So I don't think you're gonna get much gain really from owning longer dated treasuries this year. If you want to play the treasury market, it makes much more sense to look at the sort of a mid-duration area, maybe the five-year or something like that, but not to go too far out down the, uh, not to take on too much duration risk right now. I don't think it will work. Traditionally, this stage of the, uh, this stage of the cycle uh, gives you moderate bond returns, not great bond returns. 
Um, if you look at where you get most gain in fixed income at this current state of the cycle, it's normally in the credit markets. Hmm. Interestingly so, enough. That so wait, say that last part again. Sorry. Well, the the where you get most gain at this stage of the cycle, go back and look at 2001, where you get most gain or traction in the fixed income markets is out of credits. But wouldn't uh, defaults be increasing because the economy is slowing down? Correct. Well, that's that that's the supposition. But then maybe uh, you can pick and choose within the credit structure and you can find opportunities. And, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a credit analyst uh, or a bond credit analyst, but mm-hmm. all I would say is that maybe the markets are telling us something in terms of what you're seeing. And if you look mm-hmm. at how the fixed income markets are unfolding, this is a very normal cycle. OK, you've got to remember that. The yield curve is inverted, but it's beginning, I think, to inch towards a steepening. You've got convexity, which has collapsed in the curve, which is the size of the hump in the curve. So that's come right down. Um, you're looking at bond volatility, which is peaking and coming down. And you're looking at credit spreads, which are beginning to come in. And all those things are what you would normally see at this stage of the cycle. Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto. Some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, BlockWorks Research might be a good fit for you. BlockWorks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code guidance10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. So I just want to uh, address the point of interest rate risk. So there's credit risk, there's interest rate risk. You lose money as interest rates rise because you are getting paid back, but it's just not being paid back enough. So a lot of banks they made a mortgage at 3% or more likely maybe they bought a mortgage-backed security where they're being paid 3% and that was all great when interest rates were at zero, but now they're at 5% and the equivalent mortgage rate would be you know 6%, 7%. So 3% just it really is not cutting it. Uh, but then do you say, oh, but the banks, you know, don't worry about it because the banks can hedge out their interest rate risk. Yeah. And yes, I, I could hedge my interest rate risk, but I hedge it with you, Michael, and then you hedge it with you know, Mike and Mike hedges it with someone else. And the interest rate risk is there. The Federal Reserve is imposing losses on the financial system. So we've got a, a great qu- question. Uh, we can just put it on screen about from CarPro. I've never under- mm. understood the idea of hedging uh, interest rate risk. Individually, that may work, but someone has to be on the other side. So the whole banking system cannot hedge their risk with whom? What do you say, Michael? Well, I think that's, that, that's probably right. I mean, the, at the end of the day, what you're doing when you're hedging is you're effectively selling that risk onto somebody else. <laughs> So, uh, but there are people that will that will bear that risk, and it may be that you've got longer term institutions that basically want to want to take on that risk. Uh, that that's quite that's quite possible. Um, um, but you know what we you know what we're saying here is that the you know the fundamental problem uh, that the U.S. I mean that the U.S. bank the banking sector has got it comes back to the fact that the yield curve is it was inverted right now. Um, you know, I mean the. They, they they didn't do the interest rate hedging anyway. 
but you know, the question is right. I mean, all you're doing is really passing the parcel in many ways uh, in terms of somebody that must be taking that risk on the other side. But it may well be a, a long-term institution. It may be a sovereign wealth fund who's prepared to bear that. We got an, another question uh, from Harold Gray who says, beware the steepener, as they say. So last year, the yield curve inverted People saying it's it's going to be you know apocalypse. So worried, but the economy was actually you know pretty fine because it was early on. It, it, it's the when the yield curve steepens, when short term rates start falling, that is when, as Harold rightly says, you should be beware because we're entering a recession. So you you think the the central banks a huge influx of liquidity, and you think the economy will reach a, a nadir somewhere in the middle of this year. But isn't an inverted yield curve that starts re-steepening? Isn't that Kind of ringing the alarm bells from the market, purely talking about the economy, not the uh, uh, financial markets. And so, just just one uh, observation to add to that as well, which I think is in tandem, Jack, is this: uh, the two-year and the Fed funds rate, which typically walk kind of hand in hand. The two-year has now dipped well below where Fed funds is, which is usually the first signal that the Fed is starting to think about turning, or the market is sniffing out that the Fed is going to turn, which typically happens right when the recession is. Uh, just become consensus, which also sort of supports that idea of steepening. That's a great yeah. context. Thanks. Uh, I think yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the question is spot on. Is that what normally happens at this stage? Is you see the short end of the market falling away, rate expectations tend to drop, uh, and the longer end doesn't really move that much. Um, so that's uh, so that gives you the steepening of the curve. Now the problem that you've got this time. Uh, this particular cycle is that term premia are very negative. And I keep saying this is a wonkish point, but it is true that, that it's not all about rate expectations right now. There's a big bias in the curve because of term premia. And that means that I think that the yield curve is not necessarily a pure indicator of recession risk right now. I think it's very biased. I think it's over-egging it, to my view. Now, I wrote a paper, which is an academic paper, but it was uh, probably about five or six years ago, well, there or thereabouts, which was in the Journal of uh, Fixed Income, that basically looked at the efficacy of the yield curve as a predictor of a recession in the US. And actually, it's an incredibly flaky predictor. Um, <laughs> in terms of any particular maturity spread. So if you looked at the 210, it works sometimes and doesn't work others. If you looked at the 1.3, it works sometimes and not others. Looked at the 10.5, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. So you can always find a yield curve that will actually predict a recession, but you never know which one it is. And the point therefore is that what's really important is looking at the curvature of the term structure, convexity. And basically, if you, um, if you adjust, this is again sort of probably bond and wonky stuff, but if you adjust the yield curve slope for convexity, which is what we do internally at Crosswater Capital, that gives you a much, much better predictor of the economy. And that indicator is basically saying that it should turn around the middle of this year or thereabouts. Mm. There we go. Another uh, person asked about the Federal Home Loan Bank and why that has exploded. And I think banks are just posting their mortgages there for cash. And I actually don't think they post mortgage-backed securities uh, as the get the, the uh, question implied. I think they, that's more discount window and, and uh, uh, BTFP. I know we're, get, we're, getting, we're getting very wonkish and I feel like, you know, Michael, you are so in the weeds and brilliant. And uh, the, uh, yeah, I, I feel like maybe I could have done a better job of sort of breaking down things uh, uh, for, for our audience, but yeah, I, I want to ask you just about the mortgage question, which is that 
mortgages are not only duration sensitive, but they have negative convexity, meaning that their interest rate risk rises as uh, as interest rates go up. So things just get worse and worse, and the rate at which you lose more money itself increases, so which can be quite scary. But the so so banks have a lot of that on their balance sheets. The Federal Reserve also has a lot of that on their balance sheets. Also, the U.S. homeowner who borrowed money to refinance at three percent, there that uh, the the loss of the banking system and the Federal Reserve unrealized is the realized gain of the American homeowner. I know right. I threw a lot at you. Where does that lead us? Well, I mean, if you if you're saying that, um, I, I'm not I'm not sure I understand the question. But are you saying that has uh, the American homeowner benefited from low interest rates? Yes. Um, and I think the answer, if that if that's your question, the answer is very clearly yes. Uh, the issue that you face in Europe is that you don't have um, fixed rate long term mortgages. You basically have floating rate. And so the problem is when interest rates go up in Britain or in Europe, you start to get the housing market absolutely tanking. So mm-hmm. if you look at the US and compare that with Europe in Europe, you haven't seen nothing yet. I mean, this can this can be a real uh, a real mess. Michael, I, I want to get back to uh, to something. There's a question here about CBDCs, and I want to tie that to something that you were saying. You mentioned CBDCs earlier. You also mentioned the nationalization of uh, banking systems, both uh, in the United States and Europe. I want to get your. I was actually having a conversation with a mutual friend of ours earlier today. I actually sent him your tweet uh, that you sent either yesterday, uh, I, I believe yesterday or earlier today, about the nationalization. Can you just describe what you mean when you're saying that? And then, you know, the question that we actually have here from Bubbly Bull is uh, feels feels to me like the central bankers are in need uh, to sacrifice the private bank system in order to roll out their CBDC and get overall power on the economy. Thoughts. So my my two part question to you is, can you describe uh, what you're saying before about nationalization of the banking system? And then does that factor into your thoughts or what is the through line between that development and the development of a central bank digital currency? Okay, well, let let me just be absolutely clear here. What I said was that de facto, a de facto Mm -hmm. uh, nationalization Mm -hmm. of the banking system. And it's Mm -hmm. not nationalization of the asset side, it's of the liability side. So effectively, what you've got is that the central bank uh, and the bank's balance sheets are are, are de facto merged, effectively. Mm -hmm. So in other words, that if there is a deposit run, the Federal Reserve is stepping in to basically backstop that. Now, we don't know whether that's true, but what I've said is that's the implication of what Janet Yellen and possibly Chair Powell hinted at today, that, that that's where we're on the US. I mean, you know, time will tell. But I think that they've made certain noises to that effect that uh, the deposits or the deposit base of the US banking system is sacrosanct. Now, the question is, <laughs> when push comes to shove, what does that really mean? Well, it means that the Federal Reserve balance sheet is effectively bank- backing uh, the, the the banking system. So the bank, the balance sheets have effectively won. Now, isn't that what a central bank digital currency really is? So, in other words, if you've got a dollar in uh, in in a bank in J.P. Morgan or whatever, that's really a dollar, a digital dollar in the Federal Reserve. I mean, that it's it's for all intents and purposes the same thing. And that's really what central bank digital currencies were doing. So essentially, you've got a digital dollar. It may be administered by a US bank. But in other words, the funding structure is much more robust under this situation than it has been before. 
and you won't get uh, a deposit run because there's really nowhere else for the, the money to go. The central bank is the central bank. And I think mm. that that's the way to kind of think about it. There's nothing sort of sinister in that per se. Um, you know, a, 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 a dollar is still as good as a dollar. But the fact is that it does give um, the policymakers greater say, if you like, in the structure of assets. Now, the central bank is never going to be a lender in the way of lending to different businesses. It can't get into that game. It's a political game. So I'll have to get the private sector to actually organize credit distribution. That, that will continue in that form. So what you may have is some hybrid whereby um, the, the banks act maybe as sort of, I don't know what you would call or what we call in Europe, gyro banks. So they're basically depositories of money and they may be administer accounts. And then if you want to create credit, then they will invest in dedicated credit managers who may be specialists in different industries and they will provide the lending. I'm just hypothesizing as to how that may occur. But mm. essentially, that, that would be, the, if you like, the model of the future. Now, the banks may well have to have, as an asset, a much larger component of sovereign debt in them. That's quite possible. And as I said earlier on, maybe flippantly, that may be the solution to the, to the future fiscal problem. So at the moment, we've got fiscal, uh, sorry, financial dominance coming through because essentially everybody has responded to the problems in the financial sector. But in the future, these banks may be subservient to fiscal dominance because the needs of the government in selling debt are so great. Now, I'm not reading too anything sinister in that. I'm just saying it's a kind of convenient solution that we may have stumbled upon. Michael, as we reach a close, I just want to say on Twitter, people can find your work uh, at Cross Border Cap and your book, uh, Capital Wars, is excellent. Mm. And I actually got the name of my podcast for guidance uh, from, from the index, hunting around for, for terms. Michael, if gold and Bitcoin go up in the short term, medium term, three, six months, and it goes up for the reasons that you are saying now, because liquidity is going up, what do you think happens to the stock market and particularly uh, unprofitable technology stocks, the Teslas of the world, which they did quite well in 2020 and 2021, uh, just like Bitcoin and just like gold did for the few, few months of 2020. I think if you want a roadmap, my, my view would be to look pretty closely at what happened in 2001, 2002. Because I think if you look at the uh, movement of the Federal Reserve balance sheet or their liquidity injections, it's following a very similar path. Mm. Now, in my view, that's the benchmark. Now, clearly, we, you know, in that pro in that period, we got the terrible events of 9-11. So we've got to, you know, we've got to we've got to strip that out. But you look at the sequencing with which asset markets moved. So it was initially um, what moved first were government debt markets, then it was corporate credit markets and commodity markets. At that stage, then the economy started to get a little bit more traction. So we're talking here second half 2001, second half 2023. And then you start to see the equity markets picking up. Now, I would uh, suggest that maybe 9-11 was a big hiccup for the equity markets and it delayed their recovery. And it may be that the tech bubble burst uh, was a sufficient catastrophe that that also took time to repair. But the equity market should respond. Now, if you believe, as you know, take our view that what you may be looking at here is a similar roadmap, then if there is this monetary inflation created, you would expect to see gold uh, moving upwards and cryptocurrencies moving up. And I think that is a, an interesting necessary condition for 
the outlook that we've got. So, you know, look at always look at a range of indicators. Don't just look at one or two. Look at the at the at the big at the bigger picture here. And I think what you've got to look at is the sequencing of liquidity rising, monetary inflation hedges going up, um, things like uh, commodities moving higher, credit markets performing well, uh, and then equity starting to get traction. And if this is correct, it's going to be the cyclicals that perform first. So I'd look at cyclical areas of the U.S. stock market. I'd look at cyclical indicators worldwide. Look at something like the DAX index in Germany, which is a very cyclical index. Or you look at things like the Korean market or maybe Japanese cyclicals because of their proximity to China. Uh, or you look at emerging markets generally. And one of the things that was intrigued me in looking at the data that we that we collect is that for the first two months of this year, you've seen huge inflows, cross-border capital inflows into emerging markets. They've spiked higher. And that's normally, historically, a very good heads up to a turn in the global liquidity cycle. It may be different this time, who knows, but you've got all those factors. So it looks as if, you know, the facts are, the facts are telling us that we're moving in a cyclical upswing. Thank you. M Michael, we just recorded after the Fed met today on Wednesday, March 22nd. Tomorrow on March 23rd, the, the gray lady, the Bank of England, will be meeting announcing their rate decisions. Uh, you know, as, as people might might tell, uh, you're British. Where uh, So I think interest rates there are at 4%. How much do you think their hike? And do you think that they also are, are close toward the uh, the peak of their hiking cycle? Yes, I believe I believe that's right. I mean, I think the you know there was a nasty surprise in the UK inflation data today, and I think that's a heads up for all of us to say, look, I mean, inflation is not conquered yet, but it's probably trending lower. But you will get blips. I mean, inevitably that that's true. Uh, I think the Bank of England is is near as well uh, a rate peak. But I go back to what I was saying earlier on. Look, there are only really two big central banks in the world: uh, the Federal Reserve and the People's Bank of China, and the Europeans and including the Brits, are going to pretty much follow what the Fed's doing anyway. And China is maybe a more independent entity. There we mm. go. Well, you nicely put me in, in touch uh, with Paul Tucker, who used to be the deputy governor of the Bank of England. So I'll be speaking with him later this week, and that interview should air on, on Monday. Thank you again for that. Michael, uh, um, uh, Michael Ippolito, what, what, uh, you, got a, you got a final question? Yeah, I actually just have one question because, you know, everything that would just, if, we, if I had to sum up, uh, Michael, what you're saying, basically, hey, we have reached the ceiling in terms of interest rates that we can do. The, uh, you know, part of the stress, especially you're seeing manifested in the yield curve is a lack of liquidity in the system. So I hear those two things and I kind of couple that with what the two years doing. And to me, this seems like it should be bullish for risk assets. But again, I'm just looking at the original, at the initial market uh, reaction here. So why aren't markets saying what the three of us are kind of saying on this particular chat here? And then my other question for you is, how does this all shake out? Because I'm, I'm with you that we do need to inject some amount of liquidity here. We don't want the banking system to fall apart. But Michael, we still got a six handle on inflation. Uh, Jack was just mentioning over in the UK, it's no better. So if the Federal Reserve and and you know global central banks have their hands forced, I mean, how does this how does this all end up playing out? Well, let let me uh, let me suggest this. Uh, I mean, I, I'm uh, I'm not recommending it, but you can do it. It's there in the uh, in the records. Go back and look at the FOMC testimony um, in 1984 in July by Chair Volcker. Okay, hmm. that came just after the bankruptcy of Continental Illinois. 
Okay, we know the reputation of Volcker. He was an inflation hawk. But what did he say in that meeting? He said, we have gone as far as we can go. It will be mistaken to tighten further or indicate that we're tightening further right now. Okay, and that was in the wake of continental Illinois. So I think that the parallel is not that different. And if you looked at that, what was happening in, in 84 was that the Federal Reserve didn't target rates, then it was targeting money supply growth. But within uh, a few days or weeks of that statement, US rates were down 50 basis points, Fed funds was down. So that was there a very clear pointer to what happens in the rate cycle. As regards, should you buy risk assets? My view has been, you know, I've been saying this for months now, that this year we'll see the major indexes, both stock and bonds, range bound, in my view. But this is not like 2022. You can make money this year because there'll be certain areas that will move up significantly. In 2022, everything went down. Uh, okay, this year it's going to be very different. We're essentially at an inflection point and we're moving up. Doesn't mean to say that you can't lose money. You can lose money. Things may go down. But what I would do is to gain look at the sequencing. If liquidity is turning, which we think it is, and the heads up for that would be looking at the move index, looking at the yield curve, uh, looking at what the reverse repo is doing, the tranche in, of, in the Fed balance sheet. All those are key indicators. Look at um, uh, um, things like the, the, the bond markets, credit markets. Look for that sequencing. Look at Bitcoin, gold. If these are all moving in the right direction, you've got a fantastic heads up that risk assets are going to be performing because that's your base, if you like, of which risk asset markets build on. All right, Michael, that's a great way to end it. Um, uh, again, just uh, just uh, again, guys, uh, hopefully you enjoyed this. I'm, I know Jack and I definitely learned a lot and uh, just want to give the big plus one to check out Michael and all the good work that he does at uh, Cross Border Capital. Um, so Michael, thank you so much again for, for coming on the show. This has been a ton of fun for for Jack and I, and I'm sure our, our audience as well. Great. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and BlockWorks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.